Before we get back to today's show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. And a full 360 view of every customer. So your go-to-market team can keep up on the pulse of accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Did you know that creators are going to replace your entire marketing team in 2024? Now that is one of four unconditional truths that we share about marketing in this episode of Marketing Against Green. We tell you why distribution is undefeated. We tell you why storytelling is unconditional. We tell you why marketers are going to win in an AI era. This is a very special episode of Marketing Against the Grain. We recorded it with the Nearbound podcast. That's Jared Fuller and his co-host, Isaac Morehouse. I'm Kieran Flanagan, the CMO over at Zapier, co-host of Marketing Against the Grain. I'm here as always with Kate Bodner, the CMO over at HubSpot. Let's get into this very special episode of Marketing Against the Grain. I have a really good tee up for Kip actually, because we were at the Pavilion Summit, Kip, about six, eight months ago in San Francisco, and you were speaking on stage, I believe. The question was asked, quality versus quantity. And I thought your explanation and what you said, I haven't forgot since I heard it. What I heard you say was, I've never gone wrong with more. And so distribution is undefeated. Is that a tee up? Well, yeah, look, Kieran, you and I, We worked together for a decade before you you went over to Zapier. And the thing we would always come back to is we'd have problems. We'd be like struggling for a month at HubSpot. We'd be like, oh man, what are we going to do? And we'd always come back like, oh, we just need more signups or more leads or like more distribution. And it seems stupid, but like it's harder than just doing, oh, we're going to tweak the conversion rate of our website or we're going to make better marketing automation. Like my belief in this world is that most marketers, especially the ones that aren't very good, they want to do conversion rate fixes because it's easier and more in their control where distribution requires longer lead time, more creativity, requires you to be much more aggressive. Like Kieran, you're one of the best distribution minded people on the freaking planet. I've learned more from you than anybody else. Give everybody your 60 seconds on distribution. It's a guiding principle of how I structure most things in my life Same. in that I'll give you the tale of two dinners, right? So I went to dinner with a founder and we were sitting down talking about his business. He wanted some advisory work. And when you do advisory, you usually get equity. So you're betting on that company. So you have to like be really diligent. Do you believe in this founder? Do you believe in this company? So we sat down and had dinner. 
we were talking about his product and his product was had broad appeal. Like it's not mass appeal. It's not B2C, it's B2B, but had broad appeal. And he's asking his marketing team to do all this hyper segmented like marketing, only market to the segments that I think I can convert really, really highly. I'm trying to explain to him the thing you want to value is digital real estate. Whoever owns digital real estate wins, right? I have another dinner with a founder much more recently. And I was thinking through, should I do an angel investment in this company? That founder didn't spend much of their time talking about the product at the start of that meeting. They talked about this incredible distribution engine they were going to build. Everything was about how they were going to suck in a mass amount of market, and then they were going to have their own distribution engine to be able to like convert onto that product. That first dinner was three years ago. That company has shrunk, and they have shrunk for a core reason, because if you spend your time doing all this kind of hyper-personalized marketing... You are always leaving yourself in the position that someone else will usurp you and take the rest of the market away from you, right? Before you've even figured out that it's happened. That other founder, I invested because I'm super bullish on a founder who thinks about distribution first. For me, that's the way that marketers think. Like Kip and I were in a meeting once before and I was to Kip, hey, like we've got this big problem, right? Like how do we actually grow here and here and here? We came to the conclusion that instead of having a blog that did 3 million visits a month, we should have a blog that had 15 million visits a month. So we just did that, right? And the other thing I'll just like ran that out with is people don't get creative about how you monetize demand. They think the only way you can monetize demand is on your own product. We always believe that digital real estate gives you leverage in other areas. I can monetize that demand for my partners and my partners can promote my brand. I can monetize that demand on my own product ads for my own brand. That's why HubSpot built a media network. And so you have to be creative around what you can do with that digital real estate. And just to end that, I think the thing you want to keep in mind, Kip's quote is really great. Like if you have one takeaway from this segment, take that away. But the other one that I really love is like, own the real estate, do not rent the real estate. I think you're in a much stronger position when you do that. Yeah, it's it's still not the norm, I would say, but people understanding if I can have a point of view and build an audience around that point of view, build trust in some market around that point of view, and now I can roll out to them. I've got a market that I sort of own. I can roll out to them products later. Like the distribution comes first in many cases. And you see obviously more extreme examples in B2C where you've got, you know, Mr. Beast can launch a candy bar. And people will buy it and it will shoot to the top because he's already got the trust of that audience. Well, there's an important distinction to make here, right? And the important distinction to make is most people, if you go back to Kieran's story from just a minute ago, who want to do that over-segmented marketing, they want to do it because they don't believe anything. They don't actually have a point of view. They're like, well, I know I have this widget and I know this specific group of people wants my widget and I'm going to figure out how to sell them as much of my widget as possible. That's some really shitty marketing. The best people are like, oh, I believe this thing in the world to be true. I think I can get millions of people to believe this thing to be true with me. And if they believe this to be true with me, they'll buy whatever I sell. And there's a huge difference between those two scenarios. When you're doing the, I don't believe anything, so I'll send the targeted email and do the targeted event and do this targeted thing, someone else does have the belief. And by the time you've woke up, most of your market is over here and you're left with a couple of people that you've been focusing on over here. And that's when things become really problematic for you. And that, you know, it's interesting when you rally people around a belief, this is where, you know, kind of the nearbound concept can come into play that buyers are influenced you know, what does Jay McBain say? There's 28 points, 28 moments along the buyer's journey. And they're influenced by many, many different people along that process. And so being able to surround them with multiple voices, because if you build a movement, 
that's bigger than just like your company trying to go to one potential customer and convince them to try a product. But if you have a movement around a set of ideas, I mean, we talk a lot about category design, et cetera. Now you've got all kinds of voices who are talking about this and your, and your potential buyer, your customers are hearing about it from other people, not just your company. And that's when the magic happens. That's when that gets easier. Well, if you kind of go with what you guys are talking about with Nearbound, which is right, how do you do that? How do you line up partners, customers, the people in your community to really help you go to market? You know, I think there are two things I would have everybody take away. The first is when Kieran and I, when we did distribution for a long time at HubSpot, one of the core line items on any distribution charter report was co-marketing. Like how do we partner with adjacent companies to get new avenues of distribution? And most teams just don't prioritize that and don't figure out how to nail that. And it's a huge opportunity. And I'll tell you the cheat sheet right now. If you talk to somebody who's another company who's adjacent and you talk to somebody there who is actually good at marketing and will follow through and do the work, it will be successful. That's like literally the only variables. And we've seen that time and time again. And then HubSpot co-founder Brian Halligan would always say like, oh, I want to partner with these companies. I want our brands to rub up against each other, right? He's like, I want their brand to rub off on my brand. And that kind of brand transfer is a huge part of working with other companies or your customers so that you can build brand equity through that. You have to have something to trade. I would yes. just like make sure that people understand, coming back like to why distribution, people don't think creatively about it. Every time you try to do co-marketing, it's really traded against like, do we have a quality of distribution? Or we're in the same range. Like if we were trading baseball cards, not that I would ever do that because baseball is one of Uh-oh. the best shots fired that has ever been created in the history of mankind. And we all know this, even if you secretly pretend you're the guy who watches soccer. If we were trading baseball cards, right, we would not trade them unless there was equivalent value of those things, right? And so the reason that it makes sense to kind of build that real estate, again, is you think creatively about it, you can trade that off in other ways. And co-marketing is like one of the best ways that we did it. At yeah, I mean, I, I was in the seat. So I was telling Isaac, I'm like, go Google this. And just to make sure it's still the case is the phrase, does that make sense? And if you go Google it, what will pop up is an article that I wrote on the HubSpot blog about why does that make sense is the worst question you can ask in sales. Now, (laughs) why is that particularly relevant? It's because at the time, HubSpot CRM, right, inbound sales, y'all were trying to define a voice, right? It was like, hey, let's, let's get a sales voice, which means, you know, if people are using CRM, what's happening on sales calls and how, you know, inbound sales sort of works is, you know, at the time was what, you know, the movement was trying to go towards, you know, that was valuable to, you know, add into that. And lots of people reference that article still to this day, you know, what is it, six, seven years later is like, hey, stop asking that on sales calls. Like, so like, that's an example. I was at PandaDoc. Our brands were rubbing up against each other, you know, and we're contributing to your blog. I got a lot of value out of it. You got a lot of value. But the reality is, is the audience got a lot of value out of it. Totally. The audience has to get more value than anybody else. Right. That's also how, it, you know, if we want to kind of close out, like distribution is undefeated at this point. Right. It's like you have to create 10x value for your audience than what they're used to getting from somebody else or in that same situation. And if you do that, you will get 10x distribution. And I can promise you, I've never seen a company that has huge distribution and a decent business model, like a profitable business model will ever not be successful, right? Oh, but gentlemen, I have an example I want to use to kick off point number two. Point number two we want to go to is that storytelling is unconditional. You have to do storytelling. Storytelling is just a universal truth of marketing. I was recently listening to David Sindara on the Founders Podcast. Anybody else here listen to the Founders Pod? Yeah, he had a great episode about Mark Twain. And Mark Twain's like a really obviously famous American writer, 
but he's also a great marketer. And one of the things that he shared in that article was like Mark Twain's journey out West. And Mark Twain befriended the founder of the Pony Express. And he mentioned what I thought was one of the best ad copies I'd ever seen. It's the original Pony Express ad copy. And so the Pony Express was to disrupt how messages were going to get across, right? And it's going to be dangerous. And you're going to basically ride a horse every seven miles, switch a horse to a fresh horse and keep going to travel across the country. <laughs> and so this is the ad. Wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders, willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. <laughs> Wages, $25 per week. That is storytelling. They take this unrealistic, dangerous proposition of the Pony Express and they make it feel like an adventure. They make it feel like, oh, I, I want to go in search of adventure. I want to be a part of this. And I think this is why storytelling is unconditional. You can take the worst thing in the world and make it sound great if you have a great story. And I think this is a prime example. What's amazing about that is like, okay, that's a job that for most people, would be terrible. But there actually is a certain person for whom it would be exciting and interesting. And rather than doing like the typical sort of job posting thing where you like hide everything and make it sound, you know, nice to just lean into that and to know the right person is going to raise their hand. And, and, and just, it's amazing. Like, I don't know how many words are in that. Not very many words. I don't know about you guys, but I immediately, I could visualize yes. I'm riding on a horse there's like bandits. I, you know what I mean? Like you can see you're immediately in a story just with those few number of words. And either that fires up your imagination and you want it, or you're not the right person and, and you walk away. That's absolutely incredible. Well, Kieran, one of the things you and I have often talked about when it comes to storytelling is one of the most important storytelling is telling the audience the truths they tell themselves, right? Like exactly. we, all, we all have our own narratives about a story and we kind of think, well, we, we know the real deal about what's going on here. And if you like tell the audience that you're in on it, with them, you instantly have their credibility. And so he wasn't trying to hide the bug of the Pony Express. He wasn't trying to hide it. He featured it. He was leaning yeah. in. That's finding your tribe, right? Like one of the things you and I have talked about is over the years, brands have all met in the middle because everyone is scared to say anything, right? And actually the most successful brands are polarizing for a reason. And they lean into the things that someone actually is saying in their own mind about that thing and everyone else actually disagrees with. It's better to have, I think, some sort of visceral reaction, good and bad, than have no reaction at all. One of my favorite things is actually to go look at old ads like back in the 20s before TV, the ads have become less creative, the more data because you tune them to the data, right? And so like now we're just in a tweak the knobs, put out out of creative and the platform will do everything for us, right? So like back in the days when it was just magazines and papers, you had to be much more creative because you had much less data to personalize and you had to be incredibly good at copy. There's such good ads, but some of them are just like so on the margin, like there's a Del Gillette razor ad and they have like so I, they, the ad copy is incredible and it's like so soft a baby could shave <laughs> and there's this like, baby holding the razor with a happy face like shaving his face and you're just like just just this incredible mix of like stuff you could not do today but just a copyright and like if you ever want to look at good copyright and yes. go back to pre-tv days and like just look at the copy because it has as that ad shows it has everything in a very short amount of words and appeals to a certain segment of users and says exactly what they think about them. there's one that i'll pull up really quickly that I think what you just showed, Kip, was incredible about the Express and then 
aligning to the audience. And I've always thought that this, to your point, Kieran, about just old ads, and I'm obsessed with Ogilvy at stuff, is the Avis ad. You know, Avis is only number two, so why go with yes. us? Oh, yeah. And yeah. basically, we have to try hard. I love it. Right? And what I <laughs> wanted to call out with this one to get your point of view on is that oftentimes when you're doing storytelling, you have to make sure that your people right, in your company are telling the same story. And in a lot of ways, I always felt that the Avis ad really made the team feel like, hey, we do have to work harder because that's who we are. Look, the Avis ad <clears throat> accomplishes one of the magical things about storytelling. They took an internal company mission and made it an external story. Right. And normally those two things are separate, right? It's like, oh, here's the story I tell to my customers and here's the story I tell to my employees. And what was great is that the story they were telling to their employees, very simple story. It's like, hey, we're number two. If we work harder, we could be number one. And instead of like coming up with some bullshit customer story, they're just like, hey, you know what? Our customers should know that we're trying to work way harder than anybody else out there to make the best rental car experience. And so we should just tell them that. And that is the magic of storytelling is a great story works for all the audiences, not just one. Like we've gotten over-obsessed with personalization. We've gotten over-obsessed with customizing our messages across all these different personas. The best stories are at a level of abstraction that everybody can get them and resonate with them. I worked at a nonprofit years ago and I asked the president one time, what's your elevator pitch? How do you describe what we do? And she said, it depends who I'm talking to. And I remember thinking, man, I never want to have that answer. And if you're a leader in a company and you are presenting a story, you've got to be able to give a story internally first that everybody understands and can rally around and is clear. And then if they don't see that being reinforced by what you're doing out there in the market, they see a different story, that's going to cause problems internally and externally, right? It's almost like if you infuse your employees with it, it won't be able to help but burst out into the market from them and from obviously your deliberate efforts out in the market. But those word of mouth should be the same as your ad copy or your emails or your you know website. It is incredible what a single ad can do for a company. Like everyone knows the old spy story. I don't think we need to go through that again. It totally reinvigorated the brand. But there's a really great ad from the from the 1960s of the Beetle car. And it's just this full page ad they took out with the letters Think Small. And again, leaning into something that is a weakness, but is a strength for other people. And the other one that was more recent, I think it was just last year, was IKEA had an incredible ad where they had their cot in a room and they panned out and there, there was no baby in the cot. And then they panned out in the bed and the baby was lying on the mother's shoulder. And the ad was happy to be second place. It's the brilliance of being able to say nothing at all, but say everything all at once. And being direct with the storytelling, Kieran, right? For example, on this, no great decision has ever been made by a huge committee of people, <laughs> right? Like the Nobel Prize doesn't go to 10 people. It goes to one person, right? right? Like the, one person or one to three people normally makes a great decision. Because once you have more than that, you come to this uninspired compromise, this watered-down story that doesn't mean anything to anybody. That same thing is true when you're telling a story out there. If you're trying to tell a story that's for everybody, it's for nobody. And all of these examples that we're giving today have one thing in common. They are discreetly for somebody and not for other people. And you have exactly. to be just as clear as who and not trying to tell a story to than the audience you are trying to reach. And most marketers are like, oh, I just want to reach everybody. And so I'm going to tell this really kind of broad, boring story, and it becomes too watered down. Your company is telling a story, whether you intend to or not. And so if you haven't right. thought about it, it's probably right. a crappy one. Like it's, it's unavoidable. It's a story. Right. 
We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get on to AI. We got, oh, we got two more topics go. here. This is where I think I am probably behind everyone else the most, on this. The most, the Luddite <laughs> over here. Like, so I'm like, if nothing else, I saw this come on the agenda. I'm like, please, guys, make the case so that way Isaac pulls his head out of the sand. So AI is a boom for marketers, which is actually the polar opposite of what you hear from most people. I actually think this is a great time to be a marketer. And we've done the creativity. Now we're going to do the machinery, right? And so I want to start with something that seems unrelated to where I'm going to go, but is really, really important. So like months ago, Kip and I on the show did this. We covered this like small GitHub repository that was called AutoGPT. Mm -hmm. And AutoGPT was this way that you could string together different GPTs and they would actually pass work to each other without any human in the loop and complete a task, right? And so they were able to complete tasks, take, take your command, iterate, improve upon it, and then actually give you an outcome. So AutoGPT was like this incredible little GitHub repository. People that were geeks like geeks like me and Kip were like, geez, well, I remember we had the show and I actually left it running by mistake and I was started doing all the stuff on my laptop, passing each agent more work and doing more work. Now we paired that with something called multimodal. Multimodal has come out very, very recently, which means that now these agents and these AI chatbots can take an image from you and you can give it a command through imagery. You can give it a command through voice. You can give it a command through video. And it can produce those things for you. I can go text from video. I can go text to image. Pretty incredible. Now, if you pair those two things together, the large language models are getting better. They're getting cheaper. And they're becoming more accurate. And so this recursive agent passing work to other agent is becoming much better. But now those agents can actually do design. And then it's actually redesign and redesign and redesign it until it gets to a finished website, right? And so you can actually have these things create entire websites for you. So we've got to the point where you can have these agents recursively do things and now they can do things in text, video, and imagery. So if you think about the place that we're heading, if I'm a marketer, my job is to do branding. My job is to acquire people into a funnel. And traditionally, that's been like a B2B SaaS funnel where you generate a lead, pass the sales. I think more and more, it's going to become a product-led AI funnel where someone comes into a product. The product itself helps you to activate, upgrade, and keeps you there. And so all of the part in the middle traditionally has been done by product and sales. Sales do the outreach campaigns. Product do all of the in-app notifications. All of these different things are done by other teams. But these self-recurrent agents can do that themselves, right? You can have one that's a sales copywriter. Think about this. You have an AI agent that's able to send that first version of an email to a small segment. 
It can take in that information and learn about what's working. It can create the second version for another segment. It can add a video. It can add imagery. It can learn over time. I don't need anyone else to do the sales outreach anymore because this agent is doing it for me. I can have someone that does this conversion rate optimization across the website for me because it can actually learn what's working over time and reconstruct that page because now it can do imagery, it can do video, it can do text. I can have someone do the sales assist portion in your product. So you pop up live chat to be able to help people to use your product, to buy your product, to be more successful with your product. Over time, these agents can learn what's working and they can just do all of that chat themselves. And so the reason I think this is a boom for the marketer is because the marketer usually stops here and they pass over to other teams who do the outreach, who do the, all of the engagement, who do all of the conversion to like someone buying the product. And it always starts with marketing, but the entire customer journey doesn't usually stop with marketing. But I think AI agents allow marketers in some companies to take on the entirety of the customer journey if they are really good at this AI mm -hmm. technology. And so I think it's a boom for marketers because you still need the brand and you need the position and you need to acquire those users in the first place. But why are the AI agents can make that customer experience much, much better? Yeah, I mean, it, we think it's kind of analog to Mark Andreessen's old comment that like software is eating the world. It's like marketing is eating the world. It's like marketing is going to be the dominant player in a go-to-market because between marketing sales, CS, marketing is the automation and data experts. And that's really what you need to build these agents. And there's no company that's going to be like, oh, you know what? I don't want to reduce my BDR ratios in half. <laughs> or I don't want to respond to my customers faster. Or I don't want to increase the conversion of my website 10%. And to be able to do that and do it very quickly is what AI is opening up. And so I think the marketers that are very automation AI-led are going to be the most successful. And I think what we've seen at HubSpot and I know you've seen some similar stuff, Kieran, is focusing on very specific use cases early on. Exactly. Is the key. Like exactly. the number one thing I could tell anybody out there is pick one to three use cases that you can just go and obsess about. The first use case we picked right. is like, oh, we think we could deflect a bunch of questions that would normally go to human support reps to knowledge base through like this chat. And wow, our customers are so much happier. They're literally 300% happier with its experience because they're getting all of that information and they're getting it in real time. Now we're doing the same thing with people who have sales questions, pricing questions, all of these things. You can triage and get a better quality answer in a faster period of time, which is just a game changer for conversion rates. So there's often this like transition period where you have a new technology that allows you to do something new and the first wave of it you take the things that you used to do and you just like awkwardly cram them into the new technology. And I think that's where the big unlock, when you said, Kieran, about sort of a product-led motion and then the AI is helping you get through the product and use the product, the things that I've seen that are crappy that I think kind of like erode trust is using AI to pretend to be a human, for example. Like, oh, let's spin up a bunch of... Yeah, it's the, right, the exactly. Like, all oh. the first versions of the, of the chatbots, yeah. and you're like, this like, is a far worse experience than I had. But I would rather just be on the call, waiting for several hours like yeah. I used to be, than talking with this like really bad And, and that's where it's like... It's, it's just frustrating. Okay, we used to have people you know, send these emails or do these calls. We'll just have a AI sound like a human and do it and like pretend versus something that's baked into the product that's like, here... Here's our AI tool that helps you 
navigate, whatever, like thinking about the possibilities of just asking something. Yeah, we have that in Zapier. Just so you know, like we actually have used it in Zapier. We've used it in a couple of ways. So we've used it to actually create these kind of contextual emails based upon your tech stack. So we're able to like figure out what tech stack you, you have and then build a very contextual map into all the things you can automate specific to your role, specific to your tech stack, specific to like who you are. So it feels like someone sat down with you and wrote a one-to-one guide with you, right? So that's a step function change of where we used to be. The way I would think about this is look at all the problems you had before in your customer journey, and then look at AI and say, is AI a step function of where we used to be? We have one team building this thing called an AI concierge. We talked about it on the show many times about this, the notion that every product in the future has an AI concierge, which means that AI assistant is with you for the entire lifetime of you in this product. So you come in, it helps you to get set up in the product, it helps you to activate, it helps you to find the value of the product, it helps you to expand your usage of your product. And that's something we're building in Zapier. I do agree that I think many of the first use cases that people use AI for is doing something they used to do and making it worse. <laughs> when they like, they're like, oh, well, I've, but I've used AI. Yeah, but it's worse. Yeah. Right? And cool so it has to be a step function improvement for it to be worth yeah, it. Yeah, like I've seen actually very recently I have had LinkedIn posts where I have had a comment that was really, really long. And it was basically just rephrasing my original post. <laughs> and it was story. so suspicious. I'm <laughs> like, that somebody has just set up some AI bot to go out there. And that's so off-putting. So, well, I think what HubSpot just did, because I just wrote a post on this about ChatSpot and then the Academy and that integration. And I think this tells the most beautiful nearbound story and AI and storytelling that puts it all together. If I'm a customer, we, we often forget that the like software is access, not outcomes. It's like, let's say my lead conversion rate's dropping and I'm a VP of sales. And I don't know what to do about that. Your software can't fix that for me. But I can ask the question that gets an expert from the academy that is like, hey, here's three places you should investigate. But here's the problem, what people don't realize. Here's the unlock. Your customer support reps and your product can't answer that question because they've never been a VP of sales. That's what's crazy. So you're using the knowledge base Right. And, you know, the storytelling through HubSpot's Academy that's done well. And then the one layer down the content and able to surface some insights in the product. Like to me, that AI use case was like, that brings together everything. And that is a big unlock. It saves you time. It helps the customer. So I think we're at the beginning of what I just heard is that marketers are going to be able to control with that baseline of like, what do we believe? What are the stories that we tell? Who are the people we associate that can tell it with us and be able to augment that across the entire customer journey using AI and automation and get in places that you weren't previously before? Well, the crazy thing is, is that there's a company that Kip and I talk a lot about on the show called character.ai. They actually just, I don't know if you've seen that, Kip, they just raised again it's 5 crazy. billion. It's a crazy I think business. they're from the ex-Facebook team. They're a really successful AI company. What they allow you to do is create a chatbot based upon any famous person throughout time, right? Then they can train the chatbot on that person's literature. And so it's like you talking to whoever you want to talk to, like having a conversation with that person. So your example there where, hey, that person's never been a VP of sales, every company will be able to have chatbots and assistants trained to act like any B2B persona that you want, right? Because there's enough data and information out there to have your own VP of sales and have someone interact with a chatbot that acts like a VP of sales. This is literally a free startup idea. Just do B2B character.ai. Character.ai is this great, cool entertainment thing, but the B2B version of having the perfect bot for all types of roles at all types of levels to engage in that way and to solve problems just like Jared was talking about is going to be a complete game changer for anyone. 
Hit me up, deal flow. <laughs> we like to invest. invest. It's fine. I, I'm using AI memo. to write the, the deal memo right now in the thesis, Kieran. I'll be picking the right. <laughs> I'm thinking not just from the vendor side. I'm now thinking from the customer side. I'm going to train up the AI so they'll go take the demo call and they'll be on with another right. AI. <laughs> Deciding oh, no. AI is going to change how people evaluate buying things for yeah. sure. Already has. Walmart's adopted AI for contract negotiations, but you're going to take all of the websites and videos across the different companies you're considering. You're going to tell all of your problems and the AI is going to give you recommendation and a thesis around what the best option is for you. And it can do it right now. Yeah. Right. People just, just aren't using it that way yet. Hey, I just know I heard marketing is eating the funnel. I'm here for it. You heard it here first. So <laughs> the takeover begins. <laughs> right. We're coming for you. <laughs> all right. So, let's swap over to the last one. Let's do it. Marketers our creators. Why does that need to be said? Kip and I believe that we are moving to the era of personality-led growth. And so why do we believe this to be true? Three things. So Google blue search links do not exist in the future, right? Google's own research that came out just last week demonstrated that large language models are actually more accurate than traditional search engine for many, many searches. And Google know that everyone is going to head this direction and there's going to be LLM search engines, not blue link search engines. That is going to be hard for people and marketers to leverage to acquire demand. It's just a harder thing to understand how to get your brand into there. Paid marketing has become much more saturated. We know that's because there's many startups, they spend their money on Google and Facebook, and it's just become a game of like, how much budget do you have? Tweak the dials and everyone else, everything looks the same other than budget. The third one that's really interesting, right? Think about all of the places where people are growing audiences. Do they favor brands or creators? I think we would probably agree they favor creators, not brands. Why do they favor creators? Because they're much more akin to someone grows in there because personality is the primary asset. Brands don't have personalities. We talked about that during storytelling. Brands have gotten away from standing from everything, anything for having points of view to having personalities. And so you can see the shift that's happened in B2C where many of the biggest companies and most profitable companies, and I was looking at some of them just before I came on this show, like billion dollar companies have been created by single creators who have grown these audience on these kind of channels. I think we see the same thing happen in B2B in two ways. I think the most successful companies in the future are founders who understand how to create, have an incredible vision, are a magnet for talent, are a magnet for press, are a magnet for like attracting mass engagement. And we saw with Elon, he's an anomaly. I don't think he will be in the future. The second thing is marketers don't think of themselves as creators. They look at creators and they're jealous. Well, that person has an incredible podcast. That person has an incredible newsletter. That person's incredible at media. That's what you're meant to be good at. <laughs> that is literally yes. the thing you need to be yes. good at. Don't look at the, they, they're doing that because they're free and they're not shackled by the brand and they're not shackled by the PR team and the legal team and they can have a point of view and they can say something. That's the kind of company B2B that succeeds in the future. I think the personality-led era is coming for Man, B2B. I, we've been calling it the who economy, that we've moved from the how economy where people get online and they ask, how do I solve a problem? And then you, you search it, you do review sites. Now people ask, who, who can I trust? Who can I go to who's right. been there before to help me? And like everything is moving more towards who, because that's people can trust people they don't know if they can trust search results and, and rating sites and, and sort of like aggregated data sets. And I think it's such a huge opportunity for those who already think that way. But for those who don't, it's like, you got to get with, the, I mean, you got to get with the program. And so if that's not you, if you're not that type, then partner with somebody who is. If, hold on. If that's not you, you're just making an excuse. Ooh, anybody can do this. It's not hard. 
That's true. It takes practice. Like Alan Iverson, every day, you're talking about practice. Yes. <laughs> you're talking about I'm practice. I'm talking about practice. You know, and I, the, the point here that I think resonates with a lot of people that Kieran and I often make on the creator stuff is like, we're fairly busy people. We have some very good options in life. We can monetize our time very well. And we choose to spend 15 hours a week making a podcast. <laughs> and if we didn't think that was going to be a game-changing thing in the future, we wouldn't do it. We, we don't do things for fun or ego. We do things to make money and win. That's the only reason we do things. <laughs> and so like, if we're doing this and there's a whole host of other people and you're seeing everybody from Mr. Beast to Kim Kardashian to even niche B2B influencers winning as creators, then why are you like obsessing about a lot of skills that AI is just going to do for you anyway? Go and build new skills and do that in the form of becoming a creator. That was an amazing mic drop right there, Kip. Oh my gosh. I don't, I don't think we could end that anymore. Like <laughs> that point is just so fundamentally true, like shockingly true. And, and I've seen the evolution too. I remember meeting you the first time in Boston, Kip, like circa the Pandadoc partnership stuff. Yeah. And like all of the things that you were focused on then. And then to see you as a marketer now, it's like people don't realize that like, the best people, like they changed their game. Like what we were doing then was not doing this. What you're doing now is this. So I'm paying attention to that, right? Like yeah. go create. You have to evolve. You have to change. And marketing is an exercise in arbitrage. It's an exercise of like finding the opportunity and seizing that opportunity. And there's no bigger opportunity than AI and creators right now in the world of marketing. And if you don't have one of those two skills, you're going to be severely disadvantaged. There's a real interesting relationship between those two, because in a world where AI becomes ubiquitous and becomes much more common, product is actually much more commoditized and notoriety is much more important and much more sought after, right? I was looking at a video yesterday where you can ask one of these AI models to take an image of a SaaS app and it built the SaaS app because again, they're multimodal. So I can give it an image and it can code that thing. In that world, product becomes so much easier to create that notoriety is so much more important, it becomes a critical thing, right? And I think that's the part about being a creator is you have to learn how to say something, tell us all the things we've talked about, storytelling, how do you engage people? How do you build your tribe? You have to believe in something. Nobody believes in anything anymore. When a machine can build any product in the world, the product that's going to win is going to have a real point of view and the people marketing it and telling the story are going to have a real point of view. And that's the thread across the four points that we've made today is that central to all of those is believing deeply in something. And if you're really lucky, you'll believe deeply in something that most everybody else doesn't see happening yet. Right. And you get to be early and you get to take this asymmetric gain on it because nobody else has seen it and the whole flood of competition isn't into the market. And Kieran, that's what you and I talk about all of the time. Yeah. It's like, have a real point of view and have commitment. I wake up every day and say like, hey, this is what I believe to be true in the world. Is it still true? If it is, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if it's not, then it's time to change what I'm doing and do something else. Amazing. Wow. The deepest competitive moat is you, is the individual, right? The products, the pricing, yes. all that stuff can be commoditized, but the uniqueness that you bring to the market, you got to lean into that all the more. This, is, this has been an amazing conversation. Everybody listening, this has been a blast. Thank you so much, Kip and Kieran, for uh, doing this joint podcast with us. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. We'll see you again real soon on Marketing Against the Great.